starting a brand new series today called Famous Last Words. Famous Last Words. And here's what this, the reason we're doing this is because uh, this last week I read about uh, a, an organization called Life Chronicles. This was started in 1998 by a woman named Kate Carter. Life Chronicles films and facilitates videos for people who are terminally ill. And so people who go, I know that I don't have much longer, uh, particularly they do it with a lot of people who are um, maybe at, towards the end of their life uh, in terms of uh, age and they're heading towards um, dementia and not being able to remember things and they want to capture their stories. So they go in and they film that for them. Uh, another one is uh, people who are terminally ill who have young children and they know I'm not going to be around to see my kids' graduation or their wedding day and there's things I want to say to them and I want to capture those things. And so she started this organization to go in. They bring a professional film crew. They bring in uh, a facilitator who's just really gifted and, and trained at helping craft the right questions to really put together something for their loved ones after they're gone. And what that comes, when I, when I thought, think about that, I go, that's kind of what Jesus did. At the Last Supper, this was Jesus' life chronicles. This was Jesus' like, the, it's fascinating because this company, this organization, wants to capture the most important things that this person wants to say to their loved ones. And in John chapters 13 through 17, we get the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he died. There's five chapters where John, one of Jesus's best friends and one of his closest followers, sort of chronicles the things that Jesus says as something that's called the Last Supper. And it's called the Last Supper because it's the last time Jesus had supper with his disciples before he was arrested and sentenced. And as you can imagine, these are the things Jesus really wanted to impress on his followers. And there's so much for us to learn from the things that Jesus taught during this one evening. So for the next several weeks, as we move from today through Easter, we're going to tackle what Jesus said through these chapters, which leads us right up to uh, Easter. And look at these famous last words of Jesus and how they impact our lives today. And again, this takes place during the Last Supper, uh, but... This is also a time, this, what's often referred to as the Last Supper is a, is a time in the first century in their uh, sort of Jewish calendar where they would celebrate something called Passover. And Passover was when they would celebrate that they were uh, thousands of years earlier delivered from slavery in Egypt. And this would be the time of year where they would commemorate that and they would remember that. And so John tells us about this Passover meal with Jesus. And here's what John writes. He says this, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. And it was time for supper. And so this actually took place in what came to be known as the upper room. And maybe you've heard that term before. Perhaps you've heard that the, the upper room referenced in the scriptures. And it's, it's really called that because it was above another room. Pretty fascinating, huh? Like, we're learning all kinds of stuff today. Uh, they're more than likely sitting in a circle. There's a famous painting called The Last Supper where they're all in this big line, you know. And the truth is, it probably wasn't like that at all. The way they would have been sit, uh, sitting would have been probably in kind of lounge chairs in a circle, uh, eating uh, off of something in the middle that, you know, eating by hand. And, and John tells us it's time for supper. And Jesus and his disciples are obviously about to share a meal together. And Jesus had delegated the responsibilities for that meal to his disciples. The, the room reservation and the preparation for the meal and taking care of all the arrangements. And he had delegated the responsibility of all of these things. And then John tells us this. It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. Now, this is John's version of uh, guess who's coming to dinner, right? John wants to make sure that the readers get the full picture of exactly who is sitting around the table. When you think about the Last Supper and you think about Jesus and his disciples, it's not 12 disciples who are all besties. It's not 12 disciples who are all in agreement with each other. In fact, it's really 12 men who really don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. It's really 12 men who uh, really have very, very different ways through which they have a a worldview and, and a very different lens through which they see things. And so who is at this table is a really big deal. And John tells us, first of all, you have Judas at the table. He's sitting there eating with Jesus. And my guess I don't know this for sure, but my guess is that you don't have a lot of friends named Judas. Why is that? I mean, it's easy to spell. Well, even if you didn't grow up in church world, because of this specific story, Judas has come to be synonymous with betrayal. See, Judas is the one who is working a a deal behind the scenes to get paid to turn over Jesus to the uh, temple guard the ones that wanted to arrest him. Judas is personally responsible for the arrest and ultimate sentencing of Jesus, and he did it to make money. And I'm telling you this because when you read the verses that come next, it's important when you discover what Jesus does, who is sitting at the table is actually a really big deal. Then you had another guy named Peter. And Peter is at the table. And I mean, there's churches named after Peter. So he's a pretty good guy, right? You would think that, and uh, he has his moments. He's very zealous for Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, you're my ride or die, man. And Jesus goes, well, before, before sunrise, you're going to even deny that you know me. It, it, Peter can't believe this. And, and I'm not talking about like when you were a teenager and you kind of liked this girl and you just started dating, and then she introduces you and you hadn't really defined the relationship yet, but she, you think you're the boyfriend and she just says, yeah, he's my friend. Ouch, that stings, right? No, just hypothetically, if that happened to any of you, I'm just saying. <laughs> not like that. Like Jesus goes, you're going to deny that you even know me. And sure enough, that very night after Jesus is arrested, Peter he, he swears up and down, I've never even heard of the man. In fact, if you look at the geography and what's taking place in the city of Jerusalem, it's very possible that the courtyard where Peter denies Jesus is so close in, uh, in proximity to where Jesus is being held, it's very possible that Jesus overheard Peter denying him. And so Peter's at the table. Then uh, there's another guy around the table. His name is Thomas. Well, what's wrong with Thomas? My dad's name is Tom. Nothing's wrong with Thomas. Thomas is the friend, every circle of friends has this friend, that says what everybody else is thinking but is too afraid to say. And so Thomas is just this guy where everybody else is like, man, we kind of want to ask Jesus, but we're not really sure we should bring it up. And Thomas is like, hey, Jesus. That's Thomas. And the truth is, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to some of his disciples. And Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas hears about it, and he, (laughs) he says, I don't believe it unless I can touch the scars from his crucifixion and put my hand in his side where he was pierced with a spear, I won't believe it. And so Thomas is just cynical. He's skeptical. And that's okay. It's okay to be skeptical. I just want you to know exactly who was around the table. There was a guy named Matthew who was around the table, and Matthew's a tax collector. 
And a tax collector, we've talked about this many times before, a tax collector was uh, shamed by everyone because they worked for the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire were the ones occupying the nation of Israel. And they let them do their thing. They let them, you know, do their temple worship thing and worship, you know, their God. But basically they were in charge and they were going to collect their taxes. And so they hired Jewish people to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. So a Jewish tax collector was despised by the Roman Empire, but worked for the Roman Empire, but was also hated by their fellow countrymen because they worked for the Roman Empire. And then on top of that, they would actually cheat their fellow countrymen to line their own pockets. And so they were just hated by everybody. In fact, you read this in the scriptures, it's, it's kind of fascinating When you read through the accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus, many of the authors talk about the fact that Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. Like they get their own bracket of sinner. Like sinners go to bed at night and go, at least I'm not a tax collector. That's how how low they were. And Matthew is a tax collector. And he's sitting at the table. And then across from him is Simon. And Simon is a zealot. Simon the Zealot. And a zealot is someone who believed that Jesus was coming to bring, and maybe not Jesus, but somebody was coming, that when the kingdom of heaven came, when the kingdom of heaven uh, was finally and fully come to earth, that they would throw off the, the chains of their oppressors, that they, would, that they would throw off the Roman Empire, and that the kingdom of heaven would come, but it would come through power, and it would come through might, and it would come through the tip of the sword. I mean, it was going to be forceful. That's what Simon believed. And in fact, zealots probably would have killed tax collectors. And they're sitting across the table from each other. So this is who's at the table. These are just some of the faces around the table. So you've got Judas, and he represents betrayal. And you've got Peter, and he represents rejection. And you've got Thomas, and he represents skepticism. And you've got... uh, Matthew, right? And, and Matthew represents greed. And you've got Simon and all of his nationalism. And all of these guys are sitting around the table. And I think sometimes when we think about the Last Supper, we can kind of glamorize it and think to ourselves, man, how awesome would it have been to be at that Last Supper with Jesus? And I'm not so sure that everyone around that table had that thought. In fact, I think there was a lot of tension around that table because not everybody saw things eye to eye. This would have been more like having dinner with Will Smith and Chris Rock, you know? And this should carry a little bit of weight in our minds. Like, think about this. These are people that had very different worldviews. Can you imagine just for a moment what you have felt when you've come across someone, when you bump into someone who has hurt you, when you bump into someone who has rejected you, when you bump into someone who you feel has betrayed you, in some way, shape, or form, and you unexpectedly run into them? You unexpectedly cross paths with them. You, you see them. And, and, and can you think for a second or imagine the emotions that sort of rise up in you, the, the, the awkward tension of what am I going to say and how am I going to respond and how am I going to react? And uh, I, I don't know if I want to see this person, but it's too late. Like, uh, no, nope, we're in the same aisle at the grocery store and they caught my eye and this is it. It's going down. And imagine that emotion that happens. I mean, think about this. Let's be honest. I've bumped into some of you in the aisle in the grocery store, and you just missed church last week, and you feel awkward. And you're just like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I like, oh, nope. And I pull up my chart. <laughs> Honestly, I would never know. So if I ever bump into you, and you're like, I missed last week, just, just walk up to me and do this. Man, last week, mm, so good. Right there, right there. <laughs> I won't even know. I'll just be like, oh, thank you. <laughs> 
But think about that. That means we feel awkward with each other and we're friends. But what about the real times? When you, when you bump into someone who hurt you, when you see your ex, someone who wounded you so badly, could we be honest enough to admit that when we have that experience, it stirs something up inside of us that doesn't feel very good? And the truth is, what about the person who doesn't see the world the way that you see the world? It's not, it's not even somebody that hurt you or wounded you or did anything to you, and maybe you don't even know them, but you see someone or you come into contact with someone or maybe you meet someone new and you, you work with someone and you go, this person just sees the world in a completely different way than I do. Like they see the world through a totally different lens than I see the world. And I'm bringing a whole set of backgrounds and beliefs and ideas to the way that I view the world, and they're bringing a completely opposite worldview and ideas and background to the way that they see the world. And they couldn't be more different than you. And Jesus had them around the table. Jesus invited them. Jesus had all these guys who all saw the world differently, who had varying different backgrounds, different political beliefs, different ideas, uh, different ideas about God and the kingdom of heaven, different ideas about how to treat other people. And he had them all around the table. And based on what Jesus said, it's pretty obvious that he wasn't oblivious to that fact. It was pretty obvious that he knew exactly who he was dealing with. And so having said that, now that you know exactly who was around the table, let's look at what Jesus did. So he got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. I I wish I could tell you that as a reverend, I walk into every situation going, how can I serve? But if I'm honest, I walk into some situations with cynicism and skepticism. If I'm honest, I walk into some situations self-absorbed. If I'm honest, I walk into some situations selfish. If I'm honest, I walk into some situations, uh, you know, defensive. And Jesus looks around the table and he decides, okay, this is what needs to happen. I'm going to wash their feet. And most of you have probably never washed someone else's feet. And you're probably thinking, yeah, nor do I ever plan to. And so this morning, we are actually going to take some time and we're going to wash each other's feet. No, I'm just kidding. Could we bring the ushers forward with the basins, please? The truth is, this was the cultural norm. You would show up to someone's house and there would be a servant there with a basin of water to wash your feet. And that was just customary because this is a culture that, for the most part, they walked places. And they walked on dirt roads. And you're lounging at a table and your feet are up next to somebody else's face. And you do not want to have everything, all the grime and dirt and other things from the road. Because the truth is, they live in a culture that wears sandals, walks on dirt roads, and your feet get pretty gross. Also, their main vehicles were horses, donkeys, and camels. And those vehicles tend to leave a lot of exhaust on the streets. And you would walk through that, and then you'd show up to someone's house. And so it would be a servant that would be there with a towel and a basin to wash your feet. And the custom was to have the lowest servant, the lowest household servant, that would be their responsibility. That's how you knew that you were at the low end of the servant, uh, you know, hierarchy was that, you know what? You get to wash people's feet when they come. And that was not a glamorous position. It was reserved for the lowliest of servants. And that's why Jesus picked up the towel and washed their feet. See, Jesus turned the social structure upside down. 
It's supposed to be the lowliest servant that does this. And Jesus instead decides, nope, I'm going I'm to flip the social structure on its head. This wasn't normal. In fact, it wasn't, even, it wasn't like, oh, what a nice guy. It's so nice of Jesus to do this. It would be considered shocking. This would be considered so far out of the norm to have a rabbi washing feet instead of the lowest servant washing feet that Jesus is actually intentionally flipping the social culture and the social structure upside down. This is not what a rabbi should be doing. He had delegated everything else, and they must have been thinking, they must have been sitting around the table with their different worldviews going, oh man, I was responsible to rent the room. He was responsible to make preparations for the food. Guys, who was supposed to get the servant to wash the feet? Now Jesus is doing it. And so now there's like the tension is in the room, and instead Jesus actually begins to explain his actions. Here's what Jesus says. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. And Jesus introduces us to the way of the towel. Jesus introduces us to the way of the towel. And if you're going to be a follower of the way of Jesus, then you have to be willing to live the way of the towel. And here's what I mean. Jesus did not delegate the foot washing. Think about that. Jesus had delegated everything else. He had delegated the uh, room reservation. He had delegated the meal preparations. He had delegated the transportation to the place. Everything had been delegated. But when it came time for the foot washing, it's not like Jesus is sitting there going, "Uh, guys, your rabbi needs his feet washed. No, Jesus had intentionally not delegated the foot washing because he wanted to show his disciples what it meant to live the way of the towel, what it meant to take the lowliest position, to deal with the messiest parts of someone and still ascribe honor and worth and dignity to them and to not think of yourself as higher than you should. That's the way of the towel. It was one of the first things that Jesus did at his last supper with his disciples. One of the things he wanted them to know, this, this is so important that it made his famous last words is, guys, I want you to follow my example, that this is the way that you live your life. And we would prefer that Jesus would have assigned a servant <laughs> Because that reminds us that we're not the lowliest. There's somebody lower than us. If there's a servant, that means, hey, we don't have to be the lowliest. And instead, Jesus takes that position. In fact, there's a kind of interesting response from Peter. Peter actually says this. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter replied, you will never, ever wash my feet. Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. And we can think about that and go, man, Peter is so humble. He just, he's like, no, 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 Lord, let me wash yours. But he doesn't say that. He just doesn't want Jesus to wash his. And when you think about the cultural moment that they're in, there's some interesting uh, thoughts to this. First of all, when you have a rabbi, the goal of following the rabbi is not simply to learn what they can teach you. And it's not simply in first century, if you're following a rabbi, this is not simply an exchange of information. This isn't just, okay, I'm going to hope to sort of glean some information from you, maybe interpret the law of Moses the way that you interpret the law of Moses, and, and someday I'll be my own rabbi and teach other people my own interpretation. 
When you follow a rabbi, the goal is this. I'm going to do what you do. I'm going to say what you say. I'm going to do things the way that you do things. I'm going to copy you. I'm going to mimic your behavior because I want to become like you. And so that should help color in this moment a little for us. Peter does not want Jesus to wash his feet because his whole life is about patterning his life after his rabbi. Jesus, I I don't want you to wash my feet. That means any environment that I go into and I have to be like you, that means I can't elevate myself. That means any environment that I go into, you're asking me to follow you and you're asking me to follow your example and to be like you. And that means any environment I go into, I should assume the lowliest position. I should assume the position of the lowest servant and serve others, lower myself. And I'm not so sure that's really how I want to live my life. And this season of Lent that we're heading into, it starts this Wednesday and Ash Wednesday. Again, it's just this reminder where we intentionally take some time and we pause and we reflect on the way of Jesus. And my prayer is that during the season, we take some time to reflect on the way of the towel, what that means for us. Because I think there are a lot of followers of Jesus who are at a bit of a crossroads when it comes to the way of the towel. What I mean by that is this. I think followers of Jesus love the salvation part. I th- I, like, I'll be honest with you, the whole idea of eternal life, that sounds great. And I don't have to earn it and there's nothing I have to do. Like, that's God's grace given to me. Love that part. The part where I have to pick up the towel and serve other people because that's what it means to follow the way of Jesus. A little iffy on that one. I think that's where followers of Jesus find themselves. We love the kingdom of heaven part, but we forget that the kingdom of heaven is not primarily the goal of being a place that we get to at some point, but that when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he said, no, the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is something that you can participate in here and now by the way that you live your life. And one of the ways that we do that is the way of the towel, that we pick it up and we serve. And as you're processing what that means for you in your own life, let me tell you a modern day story about what that looks like. Many of you might be aware of an author named Simon Sinek. And Simon Sinek was a, uh, he's a guy who's written several books. He, uh, he's a communicator and thinker, does a lot of TED Talks. And uh, in his book, Leaders Eat Last, he tells a story about uh, being invited to speak to members of the Air Force in Afghanistan. And so he, the trip starts off horribly wrong. As they're arriving in Afghanistan, they, they are uh, coming under rocket fire. And they're able to land safely, but the experience gets stuck in his head. And it was supposed to be 24 hours uh, on the ground, and then they fly home. And they're getting on the plane, and they're about to head home after he's done his, uh, his talk to the Air Force. And they realize you can't take off. There's too much danger. We need you to stay. In fact, they needed to stay an additional four days. And so he's there for four days. He, he's not allowed to communicate with his family. He can't uh, contact them, tell them where he's at, tell them that he's safe. He's, he's worried about them. He's worried for his own safety, thinking they're going to come under rocket fire again. And he just falls into desperation. Just this tailspin of desperation. In fact, uh, this is what he writes about it. He says, I became preoccupied with my happiness, my safety, and my comfort. And so he's just worried about himself. And he says, I actually, during that time, became the worst version of myself. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. All I could think about was what can I do? And he says, I started making demands of all the service members, the people who are there serving our country, and I'm demanding that they serve me. Here's one of the things he says. He says, I didn't care who had to go out of their way or twist themselves in a knot to get me what I wanted. Because he's like, I'm here trying to help you guys and now this has happened and his whole view just went right to himself. And so after being in that predicament 
for a period of time and not being able to eat, not being able to sleep. And really, he says, becoming the worst version of himself. He just realizes there's nothing I can do about this. I can't, I can't change this. I'm going to be here for the next, you know, four days. And so he said, I'm just determined. I'm going to pitch in. I'm just going to do what I can to help. And so he started to serve. He said, I'm going to serve those who serve others. And he did his best to jump in and, and start helping other people. And this is what he says. He says, I want to serve those who are serving others. And so he started to sweep floors and carry boxes and ask where he could help and just jump in and go, hey, where can I help? What do you need? What can I do? And he said, all of a sudden, his whole demeanor started to shift. His whole mindset started to change. In fact, he started moving from desperation to joy because of this shift in mindset. And here's what he writes about that experience. He says, if there's one practice I have found that has profoundly changed my life, made me a better friend, a better brother, a better son, it's that I wake up in the morning and try to see what can I do in my sphere and with my skill set that will benefit something I care about and somebody I love. Now, here's the reality. Whether Simon Sinek realized it or not, he is describing the example of Jesus and he is describing the way of the towel. That's how it it brings incredible joy. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you walk into every situation, whether you like how it's working out or not, and you go, hey, how can I serve? How can I help? And yet many of us, we walk into a situation armed with our rights, armed with our defensiveness, armed with our education, armed with our position, armed with our title, armed with our authority, instead of armed with the towel and the mindset that says, how can I help? How can I serve? See, to follow Jesus means to live a life of serving. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means to follow his example. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus knows exactly what level of authority he had. He says, God has given me all authority on heaven and earth. I know exactly uh, the authority that is in my possession. And he didn't leverage that for power. Instead, he took his authority and he came under. He made himself the lowliest and he served. And then here's what, here's what he says. Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything. He'd come from God, would return to God, so he got up. He had all this authority, so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And a few verses later, here's what he says to his disciples. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. This is the example to follow Jesus. Can you imagine what your family would look like if in every situation concerning your family, this is the attitude that you adopted? How can I help? How can I serve? Can you imagine how this would impact your marriage if both you and your spouse took this attitude into your relationship? How can I help? How can I serve? Can you imagine uh, what it would look like if you were to arrive at work like that? How your relationship with your coworkers might be? How your relationship with your employees might be, how your relationship with your boss might be, if your attitude wasn't, well, I want to make sure that I get my rights and that I get my way, but if it was said like, hey, how can I serve? How can I help? What can I do? If you took the position of the towel, can you imagine how differently you would drive? No, after you. And can you just imagine what our church family would look like if we all lived this way? Uh, Imagine the difference we would make in our neighborhoods. Imagine the difference we'd make in our community, in our part of the world. It's one of the reasons that we encourage you to join a serving team. 
here at Westbridge Church. It's one of the reasons that I'm wearing this obnoxious red shirt this morning. You're like, whoa, tone it down a bit, buddy, you know? You got to put sunglasses on. Why? Because you cannot miss this. And it says say yes for a reason, because it's such a practical way to take the focus off of yourself and be a part of serving others. See, here's what happens. When I wake up in the morning, I want this. I, I think most of us go, that sounds good. I want the joy that comes from serving other people. And I wake up in the morning and I go, man, I'm going I'm to serve others today. And by 8.30 in the morning, my life has become all about me. And you're like, yeah, what happens? Well, the vortex of life happens, right? The, the, just the day-to-day stuff and you just get sucked in and pretty soon you're worried about yourself and your needs and your rights and your happiness and all these things. And what we fail to comprehend is that there is so much joy when I give my life away in service to others. That when I'm focusing on me and my issues and my rights, what I'm also focusing on is my problems. And they get magnified because I'm focusing on them. But when I stop focusing on my issues and my problems, it's amazing how little they become when I actually intentionally try to serve others. Because the focus has shifted from this to this. And I start to see other people. And in every situation, it's about taking the attitude of Jesus and putting others ahead of myself. But that requires humility. And if you ever want to be humble, just Start living the way of the towel. Do whatever you can to show the people around you that they matter. And here's what I can tell you. We believe so deeply in this. This is why we want you to say yes to joining a serving team. Right after this service, right out in the lobby, we have a table, and it has all the different positions that we need help with. In fact, we're starting a new team on Monday mornings called the Monday Reset Team because we have to reset all of the kids' classrooms for the next week. That's not a team we've ever had before, but it's a new volunteer team. And here's what I know. From January 1st to today, every week we've been growing as a church. More and more people are walking through our doors. We're growing and growing and growing. I want to see that keep happening. We are passionate about helping people find Jesus and helping people follow Jesus. That's what we do. That's all we do. That's the mission of the church. But for us to keep doing that, we need more and more people to say yes to the way of the towel and to say yes to a serving team on a consistent basis. Because when you drove in today, there's a group of guys out there standing and waving and they're saying hello. We want this to be one of the most friendly places you've ever been to. And guess what? There are times where it's like 30 below and we're like, guys, you don't have to go out there. And they're like, no, we're going out there. And you think they're waving. The truth is their arm's frozen there. (laughs) They they actually can't bring it down, you know. And then you walk in and and people say hello to you and they greet you and can we show you where to go? And, And there's coffee that gets brewed and there's people back in all of these kids areas right now that are serving kids. And they're picking up the towel. There's people back there right now leading a highly productive two-year-old small group. (laughs) But you know what they're doing? They're going, no, you matter. You matter. You're two years old and you matter. And you know what they're communicating to their parents is that you matter. Because they're going to sit, you know, crisscross applesauce on the floor with a two-year-old and talk to them about Jesus is your friend. And all we want to do is partner with parents to set the anchor of God's love deep in the heart of your kids and your two-year-old and your four-year-old, your fourth grader, your 10th grader, so that by the time they're making this decision on their own, here's what they know. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, they know God created me, God loves me. That no matter what I do, no matter where I go, God created me, God loves me, and I can trust him with my life. I can, I can follow his way, and if I live life God's way, I know I can trust that God's way is best. And... That starts when they're two years old and four years old and fourth grade and 10th grade. I mean, and there are people that do that. But if we're going to keep doing that, we need more people to say yes. 
And I love, I love the fact that this is a church that my kids love to go to. I love it. I, I, want, I want everybody from our community to experience that. And so I'm just going to ask you, would you consider, and this is what's so amazing about this, every one of these areas, that we have a live stream that's going on, we have people operating these cameras, and we have musicians on the stage, and we have people in middle school, and all the kids' areas, we have a Monday reset team, we've got the waivers, the greeters, the coffee, I mean, every one of these are volunteers who say, you know what? I want to live the way of the towel. I want to live the way of Jesus. I want to I step up. I want to participate in that way with my church family. And so would you consider, here's what I'm asking you to do. After we pray, right out in the lobby, there's a bunch of positions that we'd love for people to jump into. From kids, to youth, to music, to singers, to tech, to greeters, to the Monday reset team that'll reset classrooms on Monday mornings, to all of these different things. Would you say yes to the way of the towel? Would you say yes to joining a serving team here at Westbridge? And if you've never said yes, would you say yes to the invitation of Jesus to be a part of his family? Because here's the message of the scriptures, cover to cover. God's building a family, he wants you in it. God came into the world, Jesus came into the world to show us what God is like, and he picked up a towel and he served. And in humility, he actually allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb, and according to multiple eyewitness accounts, he rose from the dead. That means there's more to this life than this life, and you have been invited to be a part of God's family. And if you've never said yes to that, you need to know, you don't earn your way in, you don't behave your way in, you don't church attend your way in. This is an invitation that's been extended to every single one of us. If you'd like to say yes to that, just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I'm so thankful that you never walk away from me. And I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me a part of your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And then help me to put my trust in you and to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us who are doing our best each and every day, day in, day out, to live the way of Jesus. May we come to understand that that means that we live the way of the towel in our marriages, in our families, in our neighborhoods, at our workplace. May we walk into every environment, not armed with our rights, not armed with our education, not armed with our defensiveness, but armed with a towel and a servant's heart. And God, as we do that, may we show value to other people. May we communicate you matter by the way that we serve. Thank you, and we commit our week to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.